Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee, so without further ado, here he is. And the message this morning is called The Right Way to Fast. The Right Way to Fast. Now, I know some of you uh, want to cry foul because we just had this whole fasting campaign from Crossing Borders. Now you've got to endure a message on fasting. I want you to hear this with an open heart because I think it's really an important lesson. So important, in fact, that when we had 100 things we could preach from the Bible, this particular message made it onto that list. Have you ever found yourself so frustrated with somebody just because they wouldn't listen, and so you found yourself yelling at the top of your lungs, raising your voice? Have you ever found yourself doing that? If you're a parent, just raise your hand right now. I mean, come on. If you're married, raise the other hand. All right, so that's a surrender position, right? I mean, Lord knows if you're married or have children, for sure that's been your experience. But even if you don't, uh, if, if, if that doesn't describe you in either case, you know what it feels like when you've tried with all of your might, all of your influence and persuasiveness to speak calmly to somebody, get them to see the light, and they just won't listen to you. And maybe you, you're a woman who've been, who's been telling your girlfriend, Girl, you got to break up with that man. Cut the chain and run. And she's like, but I'm just waiting because I know he's going to get better. And you're like, oh, Lord. And you keep trying to buy her coffee and food and talk sense into her, and she's not having it. And you know this is going nowhere, and you're so frustrated. Maybe you've got someone you care about with a terrible habit, and no matter how many times you show them, they will not respond to you. And at some point, you know that what is at stake is so important, and their deafness and their stubbornness is so great, you lose it. The cork pops out and just all comes flooding out. Have you ever had that moment? Thank you. And it's so frustrating, and you find yourself, like, like those veins are throbbing in your forehead, you got that vein coming out in your neck, and you look in the mirror, and you see it in the faces of your children or your lover, and they're scared, like something just happened. This isn't normal. And you realize you busted a valve somewhere. Well, that says a couple things. One is, it does say that what's agitating you is terribly important. That what you've been trying to communicate is of such vital importance, it is worth risking the relationship in order to make yourself heard, because sometimes that is the essence of love, is that when someone is plugging their ears, you yank the fingers right out of those ears. And you don't always do it gently, because sometimes life or death hangs in the balance, and they just need someone to break through that hard heart. Maybe that's you right now this morning. Maybe you're the one doing this. And people around you have been trying so hard to get you to listen, and you are just intent on destroying your own life. And you have no idea how many loving people are trying to rescue you from that fate. At the beginning of this passage, God has clearly lost it. He's blowing a gasket. He has raised up prophet after prophet. He has raised up foreign nations to conquer Israel. He has tried to discipline them in every possible way, and still the people just don't get it. Have you ever had your child in a timeout, 
and you've lectured them, it's like a Pulitzer Prize winning, you know, it's just an amazing string of words you've put together. Any child would be reformed after hearing those words. So sound was your logic. And yet they're sitting in timeout and haven't learned a thing. They're still muttering under their breath. They're acting like they're victims of circumstance. And you're just so angry, like, when will you learn? It's horrible to be put in that position. We put God in that position quite often. And at some point, God just goes to Isaiah, I don't want you to use decorum. I don't want you to use that smooth preacher's voice. I want you to stand in front of people and just lose it. Shout it aloud. I don't know if the force of that Hebrew word comes out, but he's saying just scream it. Let everyone within hearing distance know that I am very, very agitated. Raise your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their rebellion and to the house of Jacob their sins. And what God is is doing is he's clearly saying, look, I am not going to sit there and reason with you anymore. You need to be yelled at by your father because you haven't heard it. Now, that doesn't mean God's trying to yell at us, but imagine if God gets to a point of such agitation, what is it that's got him so bothered? Well, if God were yelling at us this morning, what do you suppose God will be yelling about? I don't know. I mean, just, I want you to process that question for a minute or two. If God were yelling at you this morning, what do you think he'd be yelling at you about? See, it's helpful sometimes to ask that question, explore it in your mind. Well, look at, look at what God is yelling or was he so upset about. It's the offense of supernatural or super, I'm super, superficial, supernatural is good, superficial religion. You know, when you see God opening a passage throwing a fit like this, you're thinking, oh, whatever he's about to say next, it must be that the people of God did something just awful. But this is what God's upset about. Read, listen to this. Here's the accusation, the list of grievances God gives through Isaiah. Listen, you people. For day after day, they seek me out. They seem eager to know my ways as if they were a nation that does what is right and has, for, has not forsaken the commands of their God. They ask me for just decisions and seem eager for God to come near them. Ooh, that's terrible. I can't believe, this is what God's so angry about. He's angry that these people seek him out every single day. He's angry that they seem eager to know about his ways. He's angry that they ask for just decisions. Give us guidance, Lord, they say. And he's angry that they seem so eager for God to come near. They beat their chests, they raise their hands and say, Lord, come near to us. And this is what God is upset about. What a strange God that of all the things he could be angry about, he's upset that they are being so faithfully religious. These are devout people. I, as a pastor, Wish I could say this about our church all the time, that this describes us, and yet it's got God hot and bothered. So what's the problem here? Because obviously, if you stop thinking there, you're going to leave thinking, God's weird. God's just so bored, he's getting mad over good things now. He's past our sin. I was just getting mad because we're too religious. But that's really at the heart of the problem, that what he is so upset about is that they have so faithfully gone through the motions of religion and have so totally 
miss the boat on what God's trying to do. What he's upset about is that they're playing with fire because they have mastered something they believe is holy. They believe this will bring them close to God, and yet their own testimony reveals they feel as far away from God as they ever have. And their hearts are starting to get bitter. They're starting to ask dangerous, destructive questions like, well, what's wrong with the picture? Why does God hate us so much? Why is he ignoring me? Is he even paying attention? They don't understand why they could be so religious and yet feel so far away from God and it's starting to poison their souls. And the people are reaching a crisis point because on the one hand, they have done everything that they believe God required of them, but on the other hand, they've gotten almost nothing of the experience God promised That's really hard. It's like when a girl keeps saying, you keep taking me out to nice dinners and and, and you keep uh, taking me out to great movies and great shows and I will return your affection. And you think that that's the promise. So you keep spending all this money and she's still cold-hearted towards you and you're thinking, I don't get it. I spent a fortune on this girl. I've done everything right. How come she doesn't come close to me yet? And it's that frustration that a young man would feel in that situation. That's what they're feeling. And God says, you have no idea how completely you've just missed it. There's been a plaintive tone throughout the entire book of Isaiah. From the first chapter on, God begins with words like, man, even even brute animals on the farm know their master's voice, but my own people don't know me. God begins the book of Isaiah, his public ministry, with a complaint about his people. But in Isaiah 29, 13, there is this especially poetic or powerful lament from God. The Lord says, These people come near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their worship of me is made up only of rules taught by men. Here's what God is saying about his people. If you listen carefully and walk through the temple courtyard, every word is pitch perfect. You know those kind of people that are annoying because they pray so poetically and beautifully, you just don't feel like praying after them? They're the prayer meeting killers, the silencers. They go, oh, Lord, thou hast blah, 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 and it's so flowery. And then the pastor's like, who else would like to pray? And everyone's like, forget it now. Forget it. That person writes Shakespearean poetry when they pray. I'm going to, God, I'm hungry, needy, you come in. You know, what are you going to say? You just feel like a brute. What's well, like that? These people had become experts in exactly the right words. They had studied them. They had been taught them. And everything they said was right. He could not find fault in the form or the expressions of their worship. What was missing was what was supposed to be underneath that. The words that flow out of our mouth are meant to reveal or express something that lies much deeper in. But what God was complaining about was, you have all the right words, but the heart is just so far away from me. No one could tell how bankrupt you are spiritually if they listen to you pray or make comments at Bible study. But when you're quiet and I examine your heart, God says, man, you are so far away from me. 
And in fact, your, your religion is not helping. It is what's keeping you even further away. Because you're using all those perfectly rehearsed words to substitute for a heart that is meant to come closer to me. They worship with the dead emptiness of those who are just following rules and doing what they're supposed to do. I mean, honestly, let me ask you a question. What brought you to church today? For a lot of us, the reason is that we love Jesus. We're here to worship because that is what we're called to do. But some of us on some weeks, if we're honest, we came because from childhood we were taught that this is what we do on Sunday. And if you don't show up here, things will go badly for you the next week. Your boss will call you into his office or her office and say, "Uh, listen, we need to have a talk. You're like, oh, I knew I should have gone to church. Your kid will get a canker sore or your car will get into a fender bender. That's the superstition that sometimes drives us. We're doing what we know is right, but in our hearts, we couldn't be further away from God. You know what's amazing? Isaiah is prophesying to the people who are living right around him, but Jesus picks up on these words later. Nearly 700 years later, Jesus picks up on these exact words and he quotes Isaiah. And he's talking to a bunch of Pharisees. And what were the Pharisees? These were people who were exactly like that. They were the experts of the law, the most meticulous followers of the Jewish religion. But inside, they were dead men. Nothing was going on. And Jesus looks at a group of these guys and goes, You hypocrites! You look so good on the outside, but on the inside is just death. And he says, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you. That's weird because this was 700 years ago, but Jesus is now connecting Isaiah's prophecy to his contemporaries, the people who were called Pharisees who lived in his day. And by principle then, we understand this to extend to all of us. Isaiah's words were God's heart meant for all of those born after them who would ever embrace empty dead religion and forsake the heart that's supposed to know and love God. Everyone who goes through the motions, but in their hearts, they know it. They are spiritually dead. And Jesus says, Isaiah had people like that in mind when he prophesied. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me, listen to this, in vain. There is nothing that happens because of their worship. There is no credit log. Their spiritual GPA does not tick up. They will not get more good fortune. Their children will not live safer. They will not fight cancer longer or better. Nothing will happen in their lives because of that act of empty and dead worship. They think they're doing it to store up some kind of karma credit. But what they realize too late is there was nothing happening there. Nothing at all. It's like all those people who made deposits into Bernie Madoff's fund, rubbing their hands in greed, thinking, I'm going to cash in. And all those years of pouring their hard-earned fortunes into this man's fund to grow it astronomically. And at the end of the day, they would discover they had been swindled. And the confidence with which they strutted before went right out the door as they realized everything they'd banked on turned out to be a house of cards. What, what Jesus is saying is, worship that is dead and empty is not just kind of okay, 
It's worthless. It's worthless. It doesn't help us one bit. Not at all. That, that's a sobering teaching. What he's trying to say to us is, he has never, God has never, ever been interested in empty religion. I think God is the one falling asleep first in most churches. I hope he's not falling asleep at ours, but some weeks maybe he is. But I think God is bored to death of church. How many of you guys agree with me? I mean, you know you're falling asleep. Imagine God, like, this is my party. Like, even the guests are falling asleep. What am I supposed to be feeling? What is happening in this place? Bunch of people trying to scrub off the guilt of the week, store up good luck for the next week. What is happening here? Is there anything going on in our hearts as we come together? That's always been God's great concern. Not with the forms that we're going through, but what's going on deep inside of us. That's where God's eyes are always fixed. What's scary is how blind they were to the deadness of their own hearts. Listen to what they say. We don't get it. Why have we fasted then, they say, and you have not seen it? Why have we humbled ourselves and you have not noticed? Yet on the day of your fasting, you do as you please and exploit all your workers. Let me tell you a little what's going on there. I've I've used this illustration before. Have you ever tried to give a tip to the tip jar at Starbucks and just at the moment you're putting the money in, the barista turns their backs and so you throw the money in but they never saw you give them a tip. And they turn around and act like you're all cheap. You're like, no, no, I gave you money. What's the point of tipping you if I don't get the credit? Well, the point is they still get their dollar, right? But it's that idea of like they're frustrated. Why do we go through the nightmare of fasting when it doesn't pay off at the end? Do you see the subtlety of that question? And isn't it interesting that it's not really a question? They don't want an answer to that question. But a lot of our questions are really complaints disguised as questions, aren't they? Right? How come he gets one and I don't? You have children? You know, you know that question? How come he gets to stay up late? And you're like, just be quiet. Go to bed. It's not a question they're asking. They're not going, mother, I need to understand the reason that my sibling gets to stay up later than me so next time I can process it rightly and not be upset in my heart. They're not asking for, a, for an answer. They want to whine, but they want to do it safely. So they frame it as a fake question. But what they're really saying is they're accusing God of something. They're saying, hey, I served so long. Why am I still single? How does that work, God? That jerk has an amazing spouse. And they don't do anything but eat the cookies after service and get a really good nap during church. Why do they get everything and I get nothing? I don't understand. Do you see what's going on with them? Is that they're going through all the motions and the subtext is there's supposed to be a payoff. The real reason we're doing it is to manipulate God because this is how we transact business with God. We do these religious things which seem for some inexplicable reason to delight God and then he gives us stuff back. And somewhere in the back of our minds, we're asking all the time, aren't we? At least I am. I don't understand why God likes this. We're singing poorly, clapping out of time and and we're like, Does God really like this that much? 
We give our paltry money or we sit still and listen to some four-eyed dude talk for 45 minutes on a Sunday. And we're asking ourselves, does God really like this? Why does this matter to him? It seems so important to him, but I don't really know why. But if that's what he wants from me, that's what he'll get because I'm a good boy. I'm a good girl. If that's what God required, as strange as his appetites are, let me do it. And so we walk mechanically and rigidly through the letter of the law, through the motions, and we're asking ourselves, why would God want this? But we do it, and then here's the implied thing. The deal is, if I do this, then when it's time to get married, I'm going to get a hottie. Because God saw everything I did, and he's saving the really good ones for the most faithful. Right? And, and I have had young men come up to me going, I'm thinking about going into, and this is no lie, I'm thinking about going into full-time ministry because I'm looking around and so many pastors marry amazing women. That's when the hand just itches for contact with the back of their heads. These people are manipulating God. And, in all, and think about it. Who likes fasting? Would you just raise your hand if you're one of those sick people who likes fasting? That's just so messed up. I hate fasting. Don't you hate fasting? Isn't it one of the hardest things to do? When I was an officer in college group at U of I, I would dread when the president of the group would go, hey, we're fasting today. I'm like, I hate you. I hate being a Christian today. I, and isn't it funny how the day you fast, somebody brings in free donuts to work and you just you want to punch the wall or something? What, what is that? There, free food abounds every time I try to fast. It's always the stuff I like eating. No one likes fasting, but Isaiah seizes on it because it is one of the most intense expressions of religious devotion, isn't it? If you're fasting, you're pretty serious about this religion because nobody voluntarily fasts uh, just for the heck of it. You don't do that. You've got to be pretty serious. And so he seizes upon one of their most religious activities, and he says, do you see even in this What's wrong with the picture? And here's what else develops. Look at the, the, the end of that verse. On the day they fast, they make it easy on themselves. You know how it is when you fast, you have no energy, right? So what do you, what do, they do? They take the day off of work, and they just lay on a couch, and they just rest or read. They go, don't make me move. I, can't, I don't want to clean the garage today because I'm fasting. If I do it, I'm going to faint. Just let me lay here. And so what they do is on the day they're fasting, they just completely check out of the scene. They don't do anything that moves them towards God. They just take it easy. And then because they're not doing any work, they take their undone work and they load it exploitatively onto their staff. I'm fasting. I can't move. So you do double work, you jerks, because I'm fasting. Leave me alone. Is that the way we're supposed to fast? is that on the day of our hardship, we try to smooth the path as much as possible so we get maximum credit and minimum inconvenience. Well, that's what these people are doing. They have totally missed the boat. And listen to this, to make things worse, how many of you get grumpy when you don't eat? Right? How many of you are married to someone who gets really grumpy if they don't eat? That's right, I am. I, it's scary, right? When you're married to, and they talk about, I'm hypoglycemic. No, you just have no character, right? <laughs> I'm kidding. I just had to get that up. Some people just get real, like, demonic when they don't have food in their bellies, okay? It's a demon. 
These people got so grumpy when they were fasting that the day ended in fist fights. And you know that we've come pretty close to that in our own lives, haven't we? And God says at the end of all that, you cannot fast like this and expect me to listen to you. I never asked for this. You think this is heroic. You think this is what God wants. Who put that in your head? If you can't figure out why I'd want this, then understand I don't want this. It's not what I'm interested in. Why do we think God's sitting up in heaven delighting in watching us struggle? Is that really a God you even want to worship? Think about it. You know, I'm kind of cruel sometimes, you know, like, like when I was raising hamsters, I take this really giant juicy piece of honeyed almond or something and I just hold it in a cage. They would get a little bite and I'd pull it away just to watch them go like this, right? And that, that's because I'm just completely evil. But do you think God's like that? Do you think God somehow inherently delights in watching us suffer? That there's some inherent glory in feeling bad? Because that's the way we sometimes seem to live out our Christian faith. And God says, why on earth do you think this will work? Why do you think this has any value? I'm not happy with it. I'm not listening to anything you say. And I can't believe you've gone through all of that struggle for nothing. All you did was not eat good food for a day. Nothing else was accomplished. And that's the bottom line lesson here is when we embrace dead and empty religion for its own sake and miss the point of what God's doing in us, we have struggled and suffered but gained nothing. Nothing. We get no credit, we get no benefit, nothing. That day is a wash. It's a waste. It goes in the debit column in the accounting of our lives. How horrible it is to deny ourselves food for a day and advance nothing in our relationship with God or the world in which we live. What's amazing, though, is the implied promise that if fasting is done properly, we gain an audience with God, that our voices are heard on high because of fasting that is done properly. And God says, look, is this the kind of fast that I asked for? Do you think the point is just to humble yourself, meaning to lower yourself, to, to make yourself feel terrible? In other words, let me, let me just put it this way. God's saying, do you think the whole point of fasting was so you find a way to have a miserable day in the name of God? Because if that's all it is, you just don't know what I'm like, God says. Fasting's not easy for anyone. But if you fast properly, something will move inside of you. Something will actually happen in the world around you. But if you miss the boat, what a terrible experience. And he says, is this what you call fasting? As though it was something acceptable to me. God is always more interested in what's going on inside of you than the things you're doing in his name. Well, here's the beauty of the thing. I, what I love about God is he's not just a whiner. He's a teacher. He's a father. And a good father doesn't just raise the bar and spank the kids who fail to meet it. A good father always tells you the other side of the story. Here's what you've done wrong, little Johnny. 
But here's what I want from you. Here's what you could be. Here's how life could go. This is what I want for you right now. And he shows him. And that's what I love about God. After showing the offense, the poison of dead religion and how totally worthless and vain it is, God gives us a contrasting picture. The beauty of a living faith. And and the reason I've chosen that image is because it's all throughout this passage. A living, vibrant faith undoes the shackles from our wrists and our ankles. It sets us free to stop living in slavery to religion which we just hate. Activities that kill our spirit and allows us to come alive to become the kind of people God has always invited us to become. You know, recently somebody asked me, what do you do to feel closer to God? And I think maybe they were expecting me to give a long list of Bible disciplines and, and, you know, times that I pray. But really, here's what I shared with them. I try to start each morning imagining Jesus sitting at the foot of my bed going, wake up, sleepyhead, we got a lot going on today. I have an amazing day planned for you. It starts that simply. It's not about all the religious things I will do to be faithful and tick off the list. It's about realizing God is alive to me. He wants me to be alive to him. To be in my life, to be included as though he were a real person literally sitting on the foot of our bed awaiting our awakening. This is what God's always wanted. Why on earth do you think he would be pleased with your being hungry or with you being bored fighting sleepiness in a prayer meeting because we're going three hours today and that's good, right? Why do we think God wants that from us? When in the midst of all that, our hearts are not opening up at all to him. What he really wants is for us to know him and to love him and then receive his love, to be in a real relationship with him. And so he tells us, is not this the kind of fasting I've chosen? He goes, here's your picture. Uh, Wrong. Here's my picture. This is what real fasting ought to be. To loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke to set the oppressed free and break every yoke. And if you're getting sleepy, please wake up and pay attention to me for just a second. I think God wants to tell you something important right now. That one of the greatest measures of where we are spiritually is in this. In how alive your heart is to the plight of those who have it very bad on the earth. I know a lot of people talk about victory over woundedness, healing, overcoming our demons, gaining some discipline in unruly parts of our lives. All that is wonderful, but it's all very much wrapped up about you. But Christianity is a faith that is much bigger than just us. God begins with the redemption of the individual. He saves us, but we're so focused on what we're saved from that we've forgotten what we're saved for. That is so important. One of the great measures of where we are in faith is whether we are alive to the concerns of those whose hands are bound in situations over which they have no control. They feel so hopeless, so trapped in their situation in life that they could just die. 
Crying doesn't seem to be enough of a release to express how trapped and helpless and hopeless they feel. And they need someone to come and stand with them to rescue them. And all the while they sit in their private hell and watch wave after wave of the people of God walk callously by, working on their own issues and forgetting that we are the hands and feet of Jesus Christ. Do you want to know where you are spiritually? Don't measure it in how many times you're having quiet time during the week. No, measure it according to the definition of God. Do you care about the oppressed and the poor and the needy? I know that sounds like some kind of borderline communist sentiment, right? What is this church becoming? Are we going into the social gospel? Stop. This isn't my idea to define Christianity this way. This has always been God's way of defining it. Do you care? Do you care about people outside of yourself? I'm not saying this like I'm saying, no, you don't. I'm not blaming you. I'm asking you to run through this diagnostic all the time because this is the way God's measuring us in so many ways. Does your heart ache for those who, if you were in their shoes, you would call it hell. A hell out of which there seems to be no exit door. I see some basic human needs listed here in these verses which we as Christians are called to meet in the lives of others who are helpless. Look at, look at this. Is it not to share food with the hungry, to provide the poor wanderer with shelter? In the English Standard Version, that says to bring the, to invite the homeless into your house. That's heavy. Okay? That's heavy. It's not just to throw a dollar in their violin case. It's to bring them into your own place of residence. When you see the naked, clothe him and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood. Let me just run through real quickly here some basic human needs that we're supposed to meet for people. Freedom. Four times it it references this idea of breaking chains. That's why we have this image that Heath has drawn of chains just breaking apart, shackles coming loose, because that is one of the most compelling pictures of what the gospel brings to the world. People are set free, and you have no idea how many people in our world need to be set free from injustice, oppression, poverty, abuse, human trafficking. This world is dirty and broken. And God's people are supposed to be sensitized to how many people are in bondage. How about sustenance? The reason that that fasting is so powerful is because it's a very sharp reminder how mortal and how weak we really are. Did you read that little quote by Hudson Taylor that was in the beginning of that that Crossing Borders um, announcement? I don't know if you noticed it, but he's saying... One of the great values of fasting is it reminds us how weak and frail we really are. We imagine ourselves so strong, but one day without eating and we're brought to our knees. That is the strength of the human being. It is not so considerable as we once thought. We are fleshly and needy creatures, all of us. And one day of self-denial will awaken that, that realization better than anything. Imagine what it is to never be able to break from your fast. 
to just live with hunger, and even worse torture, to watch your children go hungry and have not a scrap of food to put in their mouths, and to watch your own child die because there's nothing to eat. And then you hear that Americans spend on the order of 20 to $30 billion a year losing weight from overeating. How are you supposed to feel about the church in the mightiest nation on earth in light of that? How? How about dignity? When you see the naked, clothe him. To me, this is one of the most compelling arguments against pornography. I don't know what broke in a girl's life to make her degrade herself with a smile on her face, but that is not a girl doing well. And when you exploit her image for your own pleasure, you completely deny the Spirit of God in us. God says when you see someone who has forfeited or been stripped of their dignity, you're not the person who ogles them with relish. You take off your own coat and throw it over their shame. You protect the lost and shamed dignity of those who are without it. That is the Spirit of God in us. That is who we're supposed to be. And when you see it, you do something about it every chance you get. And then there's acceptance. That person who no one seems to really want to get to know. In every setting of their lives, they're on the fringe. They're awkward. They're incomplete. There isn't much reward for hanging out with them. Your reputation doesn't go up. You don't look cooler. You feel the eyes on you when you go out in public places with them. And so everywhere they go, People are turning their backs on them. Do you have any idea what a basic human need it is to be accepted? And I hope that we as a church will keep growing in this. That even for someone who's just on the outside of this church, at least we would start there. We would make sure that everyone on the edge is brought a little closer into the center. Acceptance is a basic human need. You want to know how central this idea of doing good works, justice, mercy is? When Jesus returned to his hometown at the beginning of his public ministry and he preached in the local church there, in the synagogue, he took out a scroll and he read from Isaiah 61. Pastor Matt's going to preach on that in a couple weeks, so I won't steal too much of his thunder, but he rolled out that scroll And this is what Jesus says in announcing his own mission statement. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. I know that part of what Jesus does in everyone's life is he heals them in the innermost being. But he doesn't even mention that important thing because what he's saying in his mission statement is, make no mistake, the hallmark of my life and all those who will follow with me is this. We will do works of mercy and justice everywhere we go. We will be at the vanguard of a tidal wave of redemption and goodness and healing for a really messed up world. We will not leave it to those others to do because this is the business of God. And the church that isn't engaged in this work is a church that is running in circles on a hamster wheel. 
That's the bottom line. And so we want to set that bar high as Harvest Community Church that we will always in part be measured by our radical commitment to helping and even rescuing in Jesus' name those who are living in shackles that they cannot loose themselves. Look what Paul writes to the Ephesians. For we are his workmanship. Listen. Not repurposed, but created in Christ Jesus. The very meaning of our existence in the world, once we've come to Jesus, is for good works. We poo-poo good works because we're taught from childhood in the church, you're not saved by good works. Amen, glory, hallelujah. I totally agree. We're not saved by our good works, but we are saved for good works. One of the reasons God heals us is so that we will be useful to him to love and hug a world that really needs a hug. And he prepared all of this beforehand as part of the plan of our own salvation so that we should walk in them. Are you tracking with me so far? I'm winding down, but I don't want any of us to miss this. This isn't for the church in Africa or Latin America or Asia where the poor are milling about in waves on the streets. It is for the church in America too. That we will not be measured simply by the gloriousness of our buildings, by how clean our carpets are, how solid the preaching is, or blah, blah, blah. People keep telling me, man, your website is awesome. And I'm thinking, thank you, but what does that have to do with anything? What is a website at the end of the day? It's a facade that stands between a person visiting and the reality of the church. What I want us to hear is this is a church that's heart, whose heart beats with the heart of Jesus. Don't get me wrong. I mean, our website is awesome. It rocks. But in the big picture, <laughs> God won't give us a gold star for the website. He wants to know, do our hearts bleed for the things his own heart bleeds for? Let me ask you a practical question as I wind down. How does my fasting translate into a greater life of commitment to justice and mercy? I mean, so I fast. What is the relationship between me not eating and me becoming more available to God to care for the needs of others? Can I just give you a couple practical arguments here? First, it softens our hearts. Listen, there's no one you feel more compassionate towards than yourself. Okay? You have such a soft heart for your own suffering. Every time others go, I'm struggling, you're like, oh, man, seriously, I feel bad for you. You don't really feel that bad for them. But when you go through trials, you're like, oh, Lord, I just feel so, I want to cry for me. I feel really tender towards me because no me should ever have to go through what me is going through. <laughs> and so God is leveraging that in fasting because you are so ready to feel the pain when it's yours. It's no longer described vicariously through another person. It's right there in your gut. All day, your stomach's going... You're like, ow. Is this what labor feels like, honey? She's like, shut up. You're not even close, right? But we're trying so hard to feel that because that awakens something in us. Imagine. You know that anticipation, 
right? That wonderful anticipation in the last hour of your fast where you're at some prayer meeting and they're droning on and you're like, hurry up. As soon as we're done here, I'm going to eat a cracker or just some. Even on Good Friday when I ate the communion cracker, I was like, oh, so delicious. It's just so good. And the little grape juice is, you know, that's how we are. Imagine that that moment never comes. Imagine there's no shutting off the fasting switch. It's not a calendar item or a religious activity. It's just the situation of your life. See, when you voluntarily fast, you feel in your own flesh a pain others live with every single day. They can't shut it off. And as longing, as great as the longing is, there is no place. They've exhausted every friendly face around them. And they're just stranded. And it isn't until our hearts soften that we will be used by God to do something. Here's another thing. It creates a sense of urgency. Have you noticed that when you're flush with good things, time just kind of becomes meaningless? One day just melts into another? Have you ever asked this question, uh, what day is it? What, is today like Wednesday? You know why we can say things that stupid? Because we're so comfortable. Because every day is so awesome, I don't even keep track of what day it is. I feel so well-rested and full and, and warm and comfortable. And what day is it? But if you're fasting from Tuesday to Thursday, you have absolutely no confusion what day it is. It's Wednesday T-minus 23 hours and two, you know, like that's how you are. It's amazing the clarity, the way your clock gets reset when you're suffering. When you're okay, time just flows. When you're suffering, time stands stinking still, doesn't it? There you are. Tick, tuck, tick. And you're just like, oh, I'm so hungry. Isn't it almost tomorrow? And it's like, no, it's two seconds after you felt that. And you begin to appreciate what an eternity just one day feels like when you're in hell. And that person reaches out to you and says, look, I'm in really bad shape. Could you see about helping me? I, I, I'm really at my wit's end. I don't know where to go. And we say to them, well, you know, I'll, I have to go through some other people, and we're going to have some meetings. I'll get back to you next Tuesday. And they're polite, and they go, okay, thank you. Whatever you can do would be great. But inside, they are dying. And the reason you can put it on your to-do list as a scheduled item is because you're not in the hell with them. For you, it becomes a task. Oh, next Tuesday, we'll get to it without realizing the distance between today to next Tuesday is eternity for the person suffering. It is hell, and that's not an exaggeration. Suffering without an off switch that you just want to make go away and you're waiting and waiting, completely humiliated that your life has come to this. You are totally at the mercy of the kindness of others and when they don't seem to be a hurry, it wounds your spirit, doesn't it? Do you like when you really need a pastoral insight and you're in pain and you call out to me and you call Susie, can I meet with Pastor Dave? And what you get back is, um, well, do you have time two months from now? And you're like, no, I don't have time two months from now. I need to complain today. He needs to listen right now. And that's what you feel. The urgency is there for you. And if I make you wait two weeks, something in you will die, or either that or God will be faithful and fix you apart from me, right? But that time just, 
expands like a gas. And the reason we fast is to reset our clocks, to reintroduce a sense of the urgency of need so that we don't blow off the plight of others while we're making up our minds slowly. We are called to move to action quickly because suffering is hard to take even for another day. Amen? Here's the last argument. It actually frees up our resources. That's what I love about what we're doing with fast or famine. What a beautiful idea because sometimes we think fasting is like a, an exercise in self-control. And yes, it is that. But you know how much money we spend on a week in food? And imagine if instead of using this as a dieting strategy or a budgeting strategy, we actually, instead of inflating our savings account, it leads us to become more generous. Look, guys, uh, I didn't eat all week, and so I saved like 150 bucks. Could you possibly use 150 bucks of uneaten food for yourselves? Do you know how many people are like, uh-huh, uh-huh? I'll take anything. Give me a jar of mayonnaise. I'll eat it. Just, I'm starving here. Imagine if instead of looking at fasting as a, an exercise in monk-like asceticism of kung fu discipline, a long time. I'm, I'm a black belt, third degree faster. That's not the dynamic at all. What if instead it was like saying, I will go without so that someone will go with? What if the food literally leaves my plate and lands on yours? And what if the time I free up from cooking, eating, doing dishes, pooping, washing my hands, the whole business related to gastrointestinal dynamics is now turned over to Jesus Christ. And you calculate, in addition to 150 bucks, I saved eight hours this week not shoveling stuff into my face. God, you get eight hours extra of my life directly aimed at helping someone who needs help. Can you imagine what fasting would become for us then? Because in fact, this is not some cool idea Crossing Borders came up with. This is the way God describes the fasting that delights him, is that as we're fasting, something profound is transforming in us. And not only fasting, but every spiritual activity we do in the name of our Christian faith, intended to produce transformation inside of us. And if you could see that, every new spiritual task would be an invitation to change. It would bring life. It ends by saying, this is the promise of a life lived this way. Your light will shine. It will break forth like the dawn. You will cover the earth with light. You won't have to put out all kinds of marketing techniques People will see how different you are and your light will shine to the world. You will heal quickly. God will go before you and be your rear guard. Quite literally, your security will come because God will have your back. Then you will call and the Lord will answer. Wouldn't that be nice? Every time you cry out to him, there will be a response. And God will say to you, here am I. Isn't that interesting? Because elsewhere in Isaiah, God says, here I am. 
Isaiah says, here I am to God. Now God says, if you live this way, I will also say that to you. You will cry out to me, and I will be right there for you. And if you do away with the yoke of oppression and with the pointing finger and malicious talk, and if you spend yourselves in behalf of the hungry and satisfy the needs of the oppressed, then Harvest Community Church, our light will rise in the darkness, and even our night will become as bright as the noonday. That picture excites me. Does this excite you? I hope nobody ever says of our church, it's the church known for awesome preaching. I mean, come on, let's, you know. But if that's what we're known for, how shameful it is to all of us. Because it's not even that good. If this is our claim to fame, we've missed something. If they say we have awesome snacks, good, but really, is that our claim to fame? Is our food is good or the puppets? What, What they should say about us is, man, when you're in need, those people are your friends. When you're crying out to God, God sends the cavalry of harvest marching over the hill into your camp. These people will bleed for you. There's no greater friend in need than the people God's raising up at harvest. That's what we want to hear. And can I just challenge you with this? It will be very expensive for us to live that way. Make no mistake about it. The needs of this world have no limit. We open the door and they will flood in. But it's just my vision for our church. I think it's yours too. That that's the kind of church we'll be. And I hope that God will accomplish that for his sake. Why don't we pray? Thank you for listening patiently. It's time now to get before God and ask him to finish that last mile for us. I've talked to friends who are pastors who have led their churches through a massive change from being a traditional, boy, that was a great worship service church, to that church have lost their stinking minds when it comes to poor people. They are just giving it away. It's reckless how they give and give and give. But what they testify is, though it was clumsy and awkward and uncomfortable, when they became that kind of church, something amazing happened inside the church. People stopped fighting as much as they used to. They were no longer seizing on these little dramas and distractions to feel alive. Something was happening. The kingdom was visible now. No longer would they walk past the hurting and helpless and think, blessings on you. Somehow I hope help comes. They would say, I will give you what I have now and I will find more because I would never want to walk a foot in your shoes. I see where you are. And because I wouldn't wish it on anyone, I will stand between you and this suffering because I've been given more than you. Isn't this the heart of Jesus Christ? And I think what we need to do right now 
before we commit anything, before we raise our voices and boast to God about what we will do, is we need to just beg Him for that kind of heart. Because I will readily admit to you, I don't have it. I want it. I want more of it. But God needs to break my heart too. So let's ask Him to break our hearts. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.